0: Work shouldn't feel like a drag, and you shouldn't have to sacrifice your soul for a job you love. Determined to rethink the future of work, she's out of her depth on purpose. With fresh ideas, interviews, and stories from her life on the road, meet Europe's newest digital nomad,
1: Blair Palmer.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 98 of Brilliant Gamble, I hope you are really well. Episode 98, getting exciting, we're close to 100 and uh, I am thinking that the 100th episode will be a proper fresh interview, I've got quite a few in the bag now. Uh, editing those a little bit and um, getting those ready to go. So I think we'll be back with a fresh, brand new, fresh interview in a couple of weeks' time. But meanwhile, many of us work with other people. In fact, I can't think of a job, I was trying to earlier, trying to think of a job that doesn't require working with other people. And it's often the other people, not the job, that make us thinking about changing our career or changing our organisation. And that's not always a bad idea. Sometimes the culture isn't a good fit for you. Sometimes you would be happier somewhere else. Changing your job can be exciting. It can challenge you to grow. It can expose you to new ideas and ways of working. And it can help you zigzag your way up your industry. sometimes easier to do that by changing company than trying to do it within one company. But just as often as I sometimes say, you take yourself with you. It's all too common to find yourself experiencing the very same issues in job after job, company after company. And that's because 50% of the dynamic between you and another person is, well, you. And that's why I've dug out today's archive show, an interview with empowerment and leadership expert, Mark Fritz. I did this interview more than a year ago, but people still mention it to me as one of their favourites. In this conversation, we talk a lot about leadership, but don't worry if you're not in a management role or you don't consider yourself to be a leader. Everything Mark says applies to any human being who works with other human beings You might pick up some useful tips to share at an appropriate moment with your boss, but also try to listen from the perspective of how you could grow in whatever role, whatever business you're in, whether you're working for yourself, freelancing, leading others, being part of a team. It's relevant to all of that. I also love Mark's approach to his own work-life balance and his ability to wrap ideas up into lovely sound bites. So grab a bit of paper and a pen and write down his inspirational one-liners and refer to them regularly. I started by asking Mark, what got him into the field of leadership?
1: Well, I spent 25 years in the corporate world and uh, I lived around the world in six countries besides my home country, the US. And I had some experiences in the implementing large enterprise systems in different countries and then leading across um, distance, cultures, international operations. And I, I got a lot of experience about leading people. I couldn't see what they were doing. <laughs> and,
0: <laughs> yeah. When they're across the world in another locations.
1: Yeah. And you, and you, you learn to, to trust people, lead people. You don't micromanage people. And uh, I thought that type of uh, experience might be able to help others. And uh, when I got into the leadership space, I wanted to um, build a life that I, would enable me to live wherever I wanted, maybe in the future and not be tied to a, uh, a corporate role or a corporate location.
0: You know, I speak to lots of people and I have clients who feel quite trapped in the roles that they have and that leaving and freelancing or having a portfolio or starting their own consultancy is really Terrifying, but was it like that for you?
1: Oh yeah, I mean you know, nothing, uh, no, no food gets on the table unless you do something, and <laughs> just you're out there marketing. It brings really uh, you know a true meaning to working on the business versus uh, in the business. And I think a key thing in uh, in business is you do it because you love the business you're in. But there's an element of being on the business in order to have that time to be able to do the things you love. Um, The biggest disappointment uh, for me was I I started the business with everything I could do well and I was good at. Uh, And over the years, I'm uh, shrinking it down to my sweet spot, what I'm good at and what I love. And uh, I think you build a better brand when you focus on your sweet spot from the very beginning versus you, you just take business in to make money and put food on the table.
0: Yeah, I think that there is this myth that when you start your own consultancy it's, or, or your own business of any kind, it's best to have a broad offering because, you know, you could do anything for pretty much anyone. And I've discovered similarly to you that the more narrow your focus, actually, the better you can market, the clearer you can be about who your clients are, are going to be and what it is they're going to get. But it is very tempting to have the broad offer and to never turn anything down. But you're quite protective, aren't you, about your personal life and, and not traveling too much and only, only doing the stuff in, in the way that you want to do it?
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that the real key for me is that when I'm working in my sweet spot, I gain energy by doing it. And so I'm focusing there. If I'm working outside my sweet spot, I have to generate energy to do it. And so I, I try to to focus on those key things and put those in the calendar first. And then I try to protect the rest of the time for for time with my wife and doing other things.
0: Do you think that applies even to people who work in a large business? Because that can end up being a lot of very busy activity, doing a ton of stuff that, that doesn't really fit with you, but is incorporated into the role. Do you think that, that those guys need to think about their sweet spot, too?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and because, you know, they, it determines who you put around you. Uh, because then you're using someone else's sweet spot. And, and if you combine them all together, you have a very powerful team. Uh, but I think leaders need to really understand their ultimate sweet spot, which is the intersection between passion, strengths, and value. And a lot of times what they do is they, they live in the, only the passion and the strength. So they continue to do what they like doing. And their best people aren't very happy because they look at their boss loving that and they say, he's never going to give me that or she's never going to give me that because they like doing it too much.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. So I, I think, you know, uh, you know, the more we're in our sweet spot, the more we choose carefully who to surround us with and we're a much more powerful team together. Than if we're doing something that someone else could do well, uh, think of it this way. If I'm doing something that the team around me could do, I'm competing with them. <laughs> I mean, I'm competing with my own people. I'm doing work for they could do. I'm stopping them from growing. I'm competing. I'm not adding value that way. So I think that's, uh, it's important to think about that in, in any role, corporate, your own business, anything.
0: So how, how do you um, identify what this sweet spot is then Without, and ensure that it isn't in competition with your own
1: people? Well, the first thing I always look at, and I, I coach people, I do myself, is you get an indication when you work on a very difficult problem or a very difficult task or something during the day, and you come to the end of the day and you have more energy than when you started, probably you're doing something you love doing and you're good at. Because if not, you're going to lose energy. And then the thing is, if you have that area, you'd say, well, do my people have that same too? And, and you start giving it to them. Or could they do that and you start growing them? If they have the capability to do it, then it's, it's my, uh, my job as a leader to, to give it to them and, and coach them and grow them to do it as well. I, the way that people slow their growth is they hold on to things that they like to do. And they don't let it go to make room for things that they could grow. So they, they actually slow their own growth by holding on to something they, they like doing.
0: This perfectly segues into something I wanted to talk to you about, which is, which is around global teams. Um, but not only global teams, I guess. You know, everyone has a team now that is in some way, not sitting there in their office, you know, so people are out in the field or they're working flexibly, they're working from home or or they're working in different locations, literally. How much more difficult is it to, to do this leadership role under those circumstances?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's, it's more difficult because, um, you know, managers a micromanager or managers, you're face to face and everything. Uh, your your job is kind of easy because the work comes at you. Your people are there; they come ask you and so forth. So you don't have to think about your job. The work comes at you. When people are located somewhere else, you can't have the quick five minute conversations all the time. So basically, you have to orchestrate an environment where people will work effectively together. And I think it's a good word. You know, uh, meeting leading teams, international teams, leading people who don't see each other, you're basically like an orchestra conductor. You know, you want them to make good music. And I think it's a lot about engineering an environment where you enable the right conversations to happen. And I used to call it glue. Uh, I needed to build trust. I need to get them sharing information. And I need a few processes that hold it together. And and my success, I would think of this way, uh, if they're handling problems without coming to me, then they're a strong team. In other words, I wanted them talking together without having me be the focal point, And then I'm the pace of the organization versus the full team being the pace of the organization.
0: So it sounds like that's a mindset that you need to get into because I can... I can see that that would be quite threatening. You know, if you, what's your job then? If you're not needed in that way by your people to, to hold it all together, if you're not the glue, in a sense, then what is your job? That, that could be yeah. threatening, right?
1: It can be very threatening, threatening because most people don't do it because they say, well, then uh, people won't see the value of my role, and I grow my people stronger, and they take my job. Uh, I think the more complex your leadership job is, the more your role is to uh, provide air cover. <laughs> in other words, create an environment where your people, you remove some obstacles before they see it, you enable them to work together more effectively, um, you know, to create an environment that has less conflict in it so that uh, when people come to you, you're not just a policeman or the police woman, I think there's a, there's a lot of things there where, you know, a lot of leaders don't even understand what leadership is because they view it as managership and, uh, you know, the work shows up at you. Leadership you is more front loaded. You have to determine what you're going to do and everything. Um, yesterday I was doing a session with a group of uh, managing directors and I said to them, often leadership is about planting seeds and going around and watering them. <laughs> and one of them took that on as, uh, this is something I need to think about doing.
0: I, I read somewhere that, that, something you'd written where you said, distance and culture is the acid test for leadership. So often a leader will say, oh, well, you know, my, my job is, is so hard because of the distance and the cultural differences. Actually, it's when it gets hard that it requires leadership right?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think the thing that, how would you say, forced me to become a leader uh, was the distance in culture. Because distance, you can't see what people do. You can't manage activities. You can only manage achievement and collaboration and so forth. Um, In another culture, you can't exactly tell people what to do. All right. I cannot tell the Japanese how they do it or the Germans. Uh, Business gets done differently. Right. So you kind of have to let go. You're no longer the person with the answer. Uh, You're the person that's enabling them to think, uh, grow and work together stronger. And I think was it Peter Drucker, I think, said this, you know, management was about having the right answer. Leadership is about having the right question.
0: Yeah. This letting go thing is something that I talk about a lot as well. How do you know what stuff to let go of and what stuff to hold on to still?
1: Yeah. And then that's a, that's an interesting one because it's a two parter, right? I mean, uh, you can only let go based on the people you have around you. So in some ways the people around you determine the leader you need to be. But um, and when I asked, them, I did a letting go session this week uh, with a group of, uh, of uh, company owners. And uh, I asked them, I said, what stops them from letting go? And 80% of the list had nothing to do with their people. It had to do with uh, fear of loss or control or things like this and, and so forth. So my uh, feeling often is this, um, people let go to the degree they still remaining feeling of control. So if I needed to know everything to feel in control, it doesn't matter how logically I think it's good to let go. I will continue to keep asking about everything so that I feel in control. So I think you gain control and you let go more when you gain your control through trusting people than in knowing everything that's happening. And it's always a combination of those two. But I think more of letting go is an issue with the leader than it is with uh, the lack of capable people.
0: This is so interesting because very often I'm working with organizations that are talking a lot about empowerment. And they've been talking about empowerment for a long time. And they've been encouraging people to take responsibility and to step up and to, to take ownership. And it's not happening. And so they become very frustrated and they blame their people. You know, they must have the wrong people. Why aren't these people stepping up? Why aren't they taking responsibility? Maybe we've got the the wrong kinds of people here. And I've reflected on that. And I, I think that the the problem isn't so much their people. The problem is their unwillingness to let go of power. So I wonder if there is almost an equation that says that people can only be as empowered as you are willing to disempower yourself, you know, or, or distribute the power uh, yourself. You cannot hold on to it and expect others to be empowered.
1: You're absolutely correct. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, you gain control by giving control, you gain power by giving it. Uh, I, I think most leaders never think through uh, the key to empowerment. They think empowerment is giving responsibilities and, and giving people more to do and things like that. But true empowerment is you're letting go of a decision, right? So uh, if you really want to empower an organization, you think about where do you want to make decisions? Because if you, if you don't give them the right of the decision, they don't have the power. And, uh, and the number one thing over the years I found, and I, this, was, this became crystal clear after leaving the corporate world as well, uh, our biggest job as leaders is to grow business judgment. Mm. Because if you can't let go of the decision, if you don't trust their judgment to make the decision, you're not really letting go. I mean, if if you're just giving them tasks and other things to do, you're basically gaining more arms and legs, but you're not gaining any more heads. And I think um, business judgment is huge, and I think it's something we need to interview for. I mean, if you bring people on and they're very, very capable, they have a nice personality, they get along with others, but you would never trust them to make a decision, you're in trouble.
0: <laughs> Such a good point, and you know most organisations have this backstop system, where the 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 manager slash leader I mean it really is a management um, role, though people call it leadership, but it isn't, is is to be the one that will make the final decision if other people can't. And problem with that is that people won't then. And, and the manager, part of their role, part of their raison d'etre is to make the final decision. So if they don't occasionally do that, they they have just made themselves irrelevant. So you create the system where you're saying to people, you go and make the decision, but if you can't, if you guys can't agree, if you're lacking the information, because I'm withholding some of the information then come to me, and if I think that the decision that I've asked you to make isn't the right decision, I will overrule it, and therefore, how, how can that possibly be uh, be delegation?
1: Yeah, it's not delegation, and it's really not empowerment, right? It's just that, uh, you know, and, and then the people push the decisions up, and. Sometimes I would push decisions up just to stroke the ego of my boss, right? Because they want to decide they feel powerful that way and, uh, and push it up. I, I think the real key thing around that, around decisions and everything else is, uh, how would you say we rise to the level of conflict we can handle? Ooh,
0: explain more about that.
1: Well, you know, I mean, uh, you, you know, you, you're, if you're really letting go, right uh then only the difficult decisions with conflict should rise to you <laughs> right. everything else should be dealt with before it gets to you and so most of the time the most difficult decisions are are dealing with some type of conflict
0: interpersonal uh, conflict
1: yeah interpersonal and sometimes other other structural conflict but uh you know you look at it another way um And the reason I conflict is so important is a decision isn't really powerful unless it's implemented. And so, you know, part of deciding well as a leader is also understanding how the decision is going to be implemented, not just to make the decision. And sometimes in in corporates, they feel great about they made the decision, they think they're done. But it's the implementation that creates the value from the decision that that you have to think through.
0: Is this related to something that you talk about in, in your presentations around outcomes versus activities? And can you explain what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, uh, if you, let me ask you this question. If you delegate an activity to your employee, right? Who owns the outcome that that activity supports? Well, you would own the outcome.
0: You still own it if you haven't if you haven't delegated the outcome.
1: Exactly. So, you know, if you're only getting people to do activities for you, they never feel accountable or ownership for the outcome. And I think it's so important to to give people outcomes that they can own and then they have to figure out the activities to go make it happen. And, and an outcome focus is so important in everything you do. Because think of it this way. If I have a very clear outcome of what I have to achieve, you know, we're all lazy. So we'll find the shortest way there. <laughs> if we're thinking in activities, we tend to think what we did yesterday and we just do the same things we did before. And um, how would you say the biggest difference between outcome and activities is related to this this one and let me ask you this question and say have you ever heard this expression in business we need a meeting to discuss something
0: yeah for sure yeah
1: right in discussion is it an activity or an outcome activity right so why are our meetings for full are really mostly crap because (laughs) we frame the meeting in the activity of the meeting we don't frame it in the outcome of the meeting
0: well now now you're touching on a real bugbear of mine because i very rarely in a good meeting and and it seems to me that except when i'm running it obviously it, it seems to me that that we spend so much of our time in meetings and there's you've got all the right people potentially around the table to have a really rich conversation that leads to a really solid decision and yet that very rarely happens it's delayed till next week or the right people actually weren't in the room or everyone's playing these political games. Are you someone who, who believes in meetings or do you, do you actually think that we overuse that as a, as a process for getting stuff done?
1: Yeah. I mean, Amy, some people think they need everybody in the meeting to feel blessed and, you know, everything is, everybody's supporting it and so forth and that. Um, I think, there's only three outcome of meetings from a leadership perspective. You know, you need an agreed decision, you need an agreed action, or you need alignment. And and what I found, successful meetings are only based on – they're based on two things. Uh, You have to have the outcome very clear. In fact, if the outcome is very clear, uh, you'll get help in running the meeting. When I made the outcomes clear on conference calls when I was leading – I'd often have the person in one country tell the other person in the other country to shut up. We don't have time for this. We have to achieve this by the end of the hour. So you need a good clear outcome. And the second one, you have to get the best people in the room because two factors. One is the best people will bring a better solution. And when the best people are part of the solution, actually people listen to them when they leave the room when you get the worst people in they go back to their department no one listens to them because they're not worth listening to so um you know part of uh, effective politics in companies these days or part of uh having political power it's your power to be able to get the best people in the room if you have that then you don't have to worry that's a matter of giving them a focus and so forth and I found that political skills, for me, the value of that was being able to ask and get the best people in the room. And then I didn't worry about the solution, and I didn't worry about the implementation because I knew that people would actually listen to them <laughs> after they left the meeting.
0: This is great because, you know, I talk a lot about relationship and real connection, and this is a really good way to spend your time. So instead of spending your time with all the activities coming at you because you've created that kind of environment, you're spending a lot of your time building these relationships with the best people in the organization. That then means that when you need to get something done, you can get those best people together and they can, they can make it happen.
1: Absolutely, I mean, that is absolutely key. That's, that's part of what I said is calling uh, air cover. your team but think about this let's say you don't have the best relationships with your manager and let's say you don't have power of influence over fellow managers if you're in a big company and they divide up uh, pay raises and bonuses based on how the managers talk together your best people are saying I'm probably not getting paid so much because my boss doesn't have influence with everybody else
0: yeah Yeah.
1: It's a suddenly your people are disappointed because you haven't built the influence, which they're thinking I'm not, my bonus or my pay is not as high because my boss doesn't have the power to fight for me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it it actually becomes very, very visible in big companies. If, if you don't have good influencing skills or you don't have this ability, um, you know, to build relationships. Uh,
0: I think that is true. And I think that the kind of leadership and the kind of environment that you're talking about is a more exposing environment. You know, there's a lot of safety in the way that most organizations run, that that where your value is not really what's measured or what's, what's noticed. What's noticed is your profile, um, how many fires you put out, um, I mean, as we were starting this conversation we we were having a conversation about um, moans and wines, and you know how long we could spend on that, so sometimes people in business spend a lot of time on their moans and wines almost as a way of saying, my job's really, really hard, but i 'm coping as if that proves their value so what we' what we 've created is organizations where we 're We're valuing the wrong things where we're measuring the wrong things. We're promoting the wrong activities, but it is safer to do that. It is less exposing than what you're talking about. So I can certainly see why, why people would avoid doing it.
1: Yeah, it is. It it very much is, is more exposing, you know, especially if you're in the corporate world. Um, The interesting one, when I work a lot with uh, business owners, uh, it, you know, they're at the top. So it's not an issue of their threat. But the fact is, is that if they don't let go, and they don't act in a different way, and their job is to enable the people versus decide everything, uh, when they when they come to sell their company, their their company isn't as valuable. Right? Because the decision making isn't in there. And then uh, they end up the, the new owners say, well, I need you to stay on board for a period of time until I put the decision-making in the company. And now no one likes to stay around watching someone else manage their own company. So I, I think it's, uh, it's safer and, uh, in the corporate world to, uh, how would you say, uh, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. But in in some ways, you know, if you think about it, you're basically protecting your current role versus growing the skills to climb higher. And that's uh, that's not good either. Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, there is an element of uh, if you want to succeed, you're you know, you kind of always have to stick your neck out a little bit. Right. You have to be able to be willing to do something different. And I think you mentioned the, the real key of that is uh, it's easier to stick your neck out when you have good relationships around you. If you stick your neck out and everybody hates you, <laughs> you're bound to be in trouble.
0: The world that you're describing, the, the the approach to leadership that you're describing does require a bit of thinking about, like you said, because the activity isn't coming at you, you have to craft it. You have to make these decisions you're developing an, an app that's going to be available in the summer, which is, which is a, around reflection, right? Maybe you can explain what it is and why you think that that's becoming so important.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, how you say we're also so busy business is fast paced. We don't take time to reflect. And if you don't take time to reflect, you don't change. And I heard the best definition of reflection. It's uh, reflection is the opportunity to give ourselves advice. <laughs> and and I'm, what I'm trying to do is uh, I'm building an app that gives people reflection questions. And it's really around what they should be doing as a leader. The front-loaded part of what my role is as a leader. What are the behaviors I should demonstrate which enable my people to create the success and I'm not needed every minute to tell people what to do. So it's feeding people the questions, helping them uncover the actions they need to take and then tracking, are they going to do it for the next 30 days? And then every day giving them thoughts to keep, to kind of keep this idea alive in their head. And, and that's the goal uh, of that. And I think what you mentioned just before is very important uh I view leadership is front loaded work. You have to think about how you're going to do it, how you're going to enable it. Management is back loaded. You don't have to think. Your people come to you and ask, "What do I need to do next?" and they ask you to decide. So, um it's tougher to be a leader because you have to define your own work. When you're a manager, the work comes to you, so you don't have to think about it. And uh and so part of this app and, and what I'm doing is, is laying out the behaviors that more represent a leader than the than manager.
0: Can you give me some examples of some of the questions that you think leaders ought to be asking themselves?
1: You know, that they, they ask themselves, uh, are they relying more on, uh, on pull power or push power? Are they motivating people to think of their own how or are they telling them how all the time? Are they giving answers, saving their people from thinking or are they asking more questions? Are they, uh, are they giving their people choice? Are you letting them decide their own how? Because, um, You know, as they say in motivation, whenever we feel we don't have choice, we don't feel powerful. So you can't basically empower people without giving them choice. And so I think there's a lot of behaviors that we do, and a lot comes down to communication. A lot comes down to communication. Um, You have to tell more stories and examples uh, to help people get the context of what they need to do. Uh, We have to explain more why behind it. The Interesting thing I found a good, good definition around this. They said, the people who only know how will always be led by the people who know why. Ah. And I think, you know, a leader is more uh, the power comes from why. A manager, they think the power comes from telling how. So it's kind of like that's the, the biggest difference that way. Okay.
0: When we first met, you were running a session that I was in where you were asking a really good question about why people never wash a rental car.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: this is such a great analogy. Can you explain why people never wash a rental car?
1: Yeah, you know, because they don't own it, right? Right. They don't own it, so they. And then uh, I ask that sometimes in in uh, in meetings. I say, "Well, you know, why don't you wash a rental car?" And then somebody would say to me, "Because why don't even wash my own? Why would I wash a rental car?" <laughs> but there, there's a sense of pride where you wash a car, and uh, if people rent their job then they don't have the pride in it. In fact, you know, if you have a problem with a rental car, you don't go to the local hardware store and buy some tools and fix it. You just give it back. So you can tell if people own their job or rent their job by how they handle a problem. People who own their job will try and solve it before coming to their boss. People who are renting their job will just bring the problem to their boss because They don't take any ownership of it. And so there's a huge difference between people feeling ownership or not ownership. And there's a huge difference if they feel ownership for the outcome for which they'll find a a way to get it, or they feel ownership for only the activity. And and so I think ownership is, um, is the biggest issue because people who own something they feel it's their responsibility to find a solution. In other words, they're not gonna have an excuse or they're not gonna go ask their boss that way. And, uh, and that's the reason I use that analogy. And the analogy comes from, uh, from a general uh, who, uh, who he, he gave ownership for, re, for uh, he was running uh, the Air Force uh, maintenance for maintaining airplanes and he gave a group of people ownership for keeping those planes flying. And they dramatically changed the organization. And so he went around all the different places that made the change and said, how do you like this new way of working? And one of the team members asked that question back to the general. He said, when's the last time you washed a rental car? He said, we now own that those planes are flying. Before we didn't care. Before success for us was doing the activity. Now, su- su- success for us is that plane flying. As a team, we're not successful until that plane is flying. So I think it's a huge, huge difference. Also, if people own the outcome—the plane flying—or they only own the activity, maybe loading the weapons, weapons or fixing the engine. So I think it's um, it's a huge, huge difference. I mean, you know it for yourself. If you really own what you're doing you're not really making excuses.
0: I mean, it goes back to where we started our conversation when you run your own business. You know, sometimes people say to me, I work from home. Sometimes I have an office as well, but I'm often working from home because I like it. And um, people say, oh, I could never work from home. I'd never get anything done. And I think you would if you were completely responsible for making all the household income. You would not sit around watching tv all day and you know twiddling your thumbs you would definitely get on with it because your you your lifestyle is is reliant on you doing the work whereas like you say if you're renting your job you're working for someone else you don't really feel ownership you get paid your salary really no matter what then yeah if you were at home you would spend the day watching tv
1: exactly exactly and you know you think about it ownership is a feeling And that's the reason why you have to focus more on creating the why behind it. And you have to make it personal. And so when people feel more of a feeling behind their job, then they put more of them into the job. But if it's more just intellectual, you know, I I have to do this and in their mind, then they they don't do anything extra.
0: Do you think that the way that leaders need to behave and the attitude that leaders need to have today is changing compared with maybe 10, 20, 30 years ago is, is there something happening in our society or in the business world, the business context that means that this approach to leadership is now more important than it was in the past?
1: Well, it's definitely more important. I mean, I I think, the, the, the thing you mentioned before, people aren't always in the office, right? Anymore, and, and everything. So you're working with, uh, you're, you're working where people aren't right with you. You can't control them anymore, right? Because they're not next to you. Uh, also, uh, the younger people uh, want more freedom in the way they do their job than, than the older people in the past. And also, globalization means that you're always working with different cultures all the time. So everybody has a different uh, mindset and approach to work. So, you know, I, I would say that the, the best thing uh, for leaders today is to understand psychology more <laughs> and, and be able to adapt. Uh, you know, the number one thing I see working internationally is that you have to be adaptable, you know, and you know, I don't know if you ever heard, I think, uh, uh, it's in the Bible, maybe uh, maybe it's in the Quran as well. You know the expression, do unto others as I would like to be done unto? Hmm. Well, that's not good for leadership. I, I shouldn't talk to them how I want to be talked to. I should talk to them how they would like to be talked to. <laughs> right? So, you know, you, you, you have to think about the other person first. And I think, because of the diversity that we have in the business world today and the fast pace of change, um, the rules that you would create are, are maybe obsolete you know in a couple of days later so it 's a lot more flexible than it ever was, uh, which means you're you 're a lot more people dependent
0: yeah yeah and and I think that something i 've talked about on this show before is that we have always had people in our organizations but the machine was what we really wanted and so we we treated our people like they were second-rate machines really you know get them to do stuff in quite systematic exactly. and processy way these days when as you say people are are scattered around the globe but we also need them to be more to, to innovate to to be connected with the customer, to, to do stuff that a machine, even a very advanced AI kind of robot will not be able to do. In order to create that, we really need to, to, to treat them like people and to, and to turn up as a person ourselves to the workplace.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's an advantage to diversity too, because uh, what I found if you don't have diversity, Uh, people tend to compete because they want to feel unique. They want to feel different. So, you know, diversity actually creates a a stronger team when you get them uh, uh, trusting each other enough. And um, I always had a test to see if I had a team. Uh, If my team was willing to disagree with each other and argue in the meeting room, then I knew they trusted each other. Because if they don't, then they argue in the hallway or in the bar or somewhere, and uh, and that's where the conflict gets uh, bigger and bigger and bigger. So I think um, you know the the, the leaders' re- the leaders' responsibility these days uh, uh, is much bigger because you can't rely on the processes, you can't rely on the rules. Uh, you need uh, the people. Uh, equation in business is is just much more uh, it's much higher than in the past yeah.
0: and for some leaders again I use it in inverted commas for the moment that is that is not an appealing prospect I mean they the people side of their role is not the thing that they love but for, for some it absolutely is and they relish the human side of their business for some it really is a toleration and they would prefer that people didn't bring so much of this human stuff into the workplace do you think that those people can they ever be leaders really the people just tolerating other people in the organization
1: well it 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 creates a mindset it needs a mindset change for them to do it Um, but the, 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 I would say the younger leaders, you know, they definitely could, could do it because they've experienced a different world. Uh, the mid managers or the top managers, think about how they learned to be a leader, right? They started their leadership in an environment that no longer exists, right? So the world is totally different and we're highly, highly impressionable in our first couple leadership jobs, because we basically had no idea what a leader was, so we copied our boss. And some of us had to undo some bad habits we copied from our first couple bosses. So um, I, I, I guess uh, the, the ultimate factor is this, okay? If you are achieving enough success to put money on the, uh, to put food on the table, get your bonus, have the life you want, why should you change? Right? So sometimes if they're, if they're running the organization and meeting the expectations uh, and they're not leading in the ultimate style, uh, then why should I change? And basically they're just leaving the problem to the next person. And I, see, I think you see a lot of that. So a lot of people will tell you, why should I change my leadership style if I'm okay with the results I'm getting right now? So sometimes you have to paint a picture of the possible future results or in the case of company owners, if you don't let go now, you're going to get less money when you sell your company and you're going to have to stick around to help run it a little bit. And then, you know, then there's a need to change. Think about that, you know, if I'm getting the expectations I need now, I'm getting the money, no one's pressuring me, why should I change?
0: That's such a good point because that is the complacency that I I see in a lot of organizations, that actually it's really hard to work there. It's really hard to get anything done. They're really struggling to innovate. They've got lots of dinosaurs in their organization but they're still making money you know, yes. and they're still satisfying the shareholders. So when I go to those organizations, I worry about them, but I worry about them for two reasons. Firstly, I worry about the personal toll on individuals. So the, the bags under the eyes and the pressure that it puts on their personal relationships and the, the stress that they're experiencing, I, I worry about that. They're keeping it going but it's taking a huge personal toll, and I also am worried for the future. I 'm worried that those organizations, their complacency eventually will come back to bite them, either because their industry will be disrupted by a, a business a business model that doesn 't operate that way and just cleans the floor with them, or that it will catch up with them they 'll start noticing it in their profitability and their and their shareholder value. but by that point. It will really be too late to turn the Titanic around.
1: You're absolutely correct. It's going to be too late by that time. And and the biggest thing I think you just mentioned is that uh, if you're not leading in, in a better way, the organization cannot change. It cannot change fast. So if a technology change happens or the industry change, you won't be able to cha- change fast enough because you're not – You know, people are just uh, controlled and managed. They're not led. But I think you made a a very interesting comment in terms of uh, the quality of life for people, right? If you're not fulfilled in in the way you do your job, every problem seems to be bigger than it really is. (laughs) So, so tendency is that you, 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 the weight of things is, is, is much more there as well. So I I think um, the biggest risk is that uh, the industry, the environment, the business, something will change in the industry and the company will not be able to change fast enough uh, because of the leadership style they don't have, that they they really need. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So final question, Um, there's so many pearls of wisdom in in, uh, what you've been saying, so much to take away and think about if there was one thing that someone could change as a result of listening to this today, that they they're inspired by this, they really get it. They know that this is the right way to, to create this ownership and, and to create organizations that are fit for the future. What's one thing that they can start doing differently?
1: I think the, the, the key is they have to ask better questions. Right? Because if you're, you're telling your people how you're saving them from thinking, they have to ask better questions. Uh, if you get your people thinking, they're growing. Uh, I think there's two things. They have to ask better questions, and they have to add the why behind things more so that there's more a reason why things are being done, not just that it has to be done. And the last thing I always say with people is that you got to give people freedom. You've got to give them an outcome and give them freedom on how to do it. You know, it just, just think of it this way. Uh, yeah, let's say you're climbing up and, uh, and uh, now you've been 10 years higher in the organization. If you're telling people what to do, you're 10 years out of date. You did the job ten years ago, why you know probably your advice isn't the best anyway, so I think give free, give your people freedom on the how by asking more questions and stop giving the answer. I think the key thing too is interesting. I do a lot of management the CEO groups, and I probably have done one hundred seventy over the past sort of seven years or so, and the key thing is there is those top top company owners, they don't allow their people in to their office with a problem without also bringing a solution. (laughs) That means you're forcing them to think before they show up. So let your people determine the how. You know, you might determine the what and the why for them sometimes too, but you know, they gotta have their own how.
0: Fantastic. Well, Mark, seriously, it's been so great to to talk to you today and to hear these great ideas and really practical different ways of thinking. We'll certainly keep people informed about the app when it goes live. And thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you very much. It was was a pleasure and it was uh, fun too. Thank you very much.
0: Isn't he great? You can find out more about Mark at his website, which is markfritzonline.com. You can follow him on social media, particularly he's very good on Twitter, at Mark Fritz. And his app, the app which we talk about in the interview, is now available. Just go to the app store and search Reflection Questions, and a link to that will also be available in the show notes. So I hope you have a fantastic week ahead. Please do stay in touch with us. We're still here, still working away, still working with clients, still trying to get the house sorted. And um, I have got some veggies in now, but there's a little bit more to do before it gets really, really cold. So please do drop me a line or get in touch with me if there's anything I can do. And of course, please follow us on the social media. And with information about how to do that, here's the lovely Ivy Palmer.
1: To hear from you, you can get all the episodes of this show, plus
0: read the blog, and find out more about our travel adventure at
1: www.brilliantgamble.com. Sign up to the newsletter and get an advance notice of classes and programs Mummy is running. Plus, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Brilliant Gamble. Finally, please leave a review and star rating for this podcast on iTunes. As it helps people find us and take a brilliant gamble of their own.